Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Car Fiction for the Love of Cars podcast, or as we like to call it, Footlock. Uh, thanks for sticking with us. The last episode was quite a while ago. We've had a lot happen to the team, which we might go into more detail at another time. But suffice to say, we're back with something very, very special. If you're an avid subscriber to our YouTube channel, which you can find at youtube.com forward slash carfiction, you may have already seen that we had a film up, uh, an interview between our very own Henry Catchpole and Gordon Murray, the legend behind cars like the Brabham fan car and of course the legendary McLaren F1, to talk about his new company and its brand new car, the Gordon Murray Automotive T50, a spiritual successor to the McLaren F1. Uh, the film is incredibly long, it's about 45 minutes, but it's an excellent discussion between these two titans of the automotive world, our very own Henry Catchpole and Mr. Gordon Murray, and it is a wonderful watch. But knowing that not all of you have 45 minutes to stare at your computer screen or phone, uh, thinking you might want to enjoy this conversation in its full length while walking along, walking the dog or going for a drive, uh, we thought uploading it as a podcast would be a good idea. Um, Henry goes into a huge amount of detail with this. It's exceptionally deep and detailed content that I don't think you can get anywhere else. So I'm really, really glad that we can share it with you here as well. Uh, remember that if you haven't subscribed to our channel on YouTube, check us out at youtube.com forward slash carfection and find us on Instagram at carfectionfilms or on Twitter at carfection. That will help you keep up to date with everything that we're doing. Also, if you are a fan of the podcast, please let us know on Twitter. Use the hashtag footlock, F-T-L-O-C. Uh, let us know what you think and what you would like us to do with the podcast in the future. It would really help us kind of figure out what we can do to make this the best it possibly can. I'll be back again at the end after the discussion between Henry and Gordon. But for now, it's over to Henry. Now, I want to introduce this car to you with, with a couple of key numbers. And yet, they're probably not the numbers you're expecting because all supercar manufacturers, hypercar manufacturers introduce their cars with claims of 0 to 60 or top speed. And in some ways, that's sort of been the way ever since the McLaren F1, which was 0 to 60 in 3.2 seconds, top speed 240.1 miles an hour. Figures that I can just recall off the top of my head because I was obsessed with that car. But Gordon Murray never claimed any particular performance figures for the F1. That wasn't what it's about. And it's the same with the T50. He hasn't given any performance specs for it. Power, that's also something that people always sort of bang on about, but this is 650 brake horsepower, which a lot of supercars, it's, it's not worth even getting out of bed for these days. The numbers that are interesting, 986 kilos. That's the weight of the T50. 986 kilos. That's not even a dry weight, which is 957 kilos. The other number that's really caught my imagination, and I think you're going to love this, it's not something I've seen quoted before, it's not something that you'd usually find on a spec sheet, it's the response rate of the engine. Now this has a naturally aspirated V12, which is extraordinary enough itself in this day and age. The response rate is 28,400 RPM per second. So this will rev to 12,100 RPM, which it means it will get there in 0.3 of a second. That blows my tiny mind, and hopefully yours as well. So without further ado, let's go and have a chat to Gordon Murray about his T50. Gordon, thank you so much for talking around this. Um, I almost don't know where to start, but let's start with, let's start with the engine and gearbox, because right. that is the heart of this, and sort of from my experiences driving F1, that's yep. the thing that sticks in my mind almost more than anything else. So. Tell us about this. 
Well, right from day one, this was never going to be anything but NA and never going to be anything but a V12 because uh, when I did the F1, we started, it was going to be a four and a half litre Honda to start with. And then, of course, they pulled out at the last minute and BMW stepped in. Uh, and that's when it went to 6.1. I, I wanted it four and a half litres, actually, because that was plenty. With an 1100 kilo car, that was plenty mm. of push. You know? um, so instead of 550 horsepower, we ended up with... Uh, 620 something um, so that was absolutely central to the design of the car mm. because for me if you've got a driver's car uh, a supercar that's essentially all the focus on driving and the driving experience the engine is more than half the experience it has to be you know and you're just never going to get that with a turbo engine mm. and anything after the instantaneous uh, throttle response that an F1's got was going to be a disappointment with the turbo engine. So that was central to everything, really. Yeah. And obviously you set Porsche certain parameters for, as you just said, for that V12. When you came to this one and Cosworth, were there certain benchmarks in terms of yeah, power and weight definitely. and Yeah, definitely. My favourite V12 is the Colombo V12, the Ferrari. And from the 60s, it was my time anyway, from the 60s. And of course, everybody thinks about the GTO, the 250 GTO. Mm. And I've, I've driven uh, that a few times. Uh, but all the 250 Ferraris had that Colombo 3 litre. And I just think, you know, in those days, 3 litres in the 60s was a big engine, you know. Mm. And I just had this sort of fixation almost on a 3.3 V12. I could just see it in my head, nice and clean and mechanical. Like the 250 LS? I, yes. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and then we did the sums. And to get more push than the F1 on throttle response, the car would have had to, a 3.1, a 3.3 litres, beg your pardon, would have had to be under 900 kilos. And we quickly did the sums with air con and everything. We thought, that's not going to happen. So we thought, OK, let's turn it the other way around. Let's see how light we think we can make the car. Uh, so we did a really, really detailed mass track. Um, and we reckoned we could get it at down to 980. So then by this time we'd engaged with Cosworth, we'd chosen Cosworth. So we re-engaged with Cosworth and said, what sort of torque curve can you get? What response can you get? What power can you get? And they came back and they said, you need 3.94 liters to, to be quicker than the F1 response time. And uh, so that's how it was set. So it was never gonna be a big engine. No. So I, I read in the technical details the response rate of the engine yes. being 28,400 <laughs> RPM. I mean, as an engineer, I can't go there, you know, because the F1, well, you've driven what, F1s. What was the F1? The F1 was, I well, I seem to remember about 10,000. And that's double the turbo anyway, you know. And uh, I, I said to Cosworth, there's a few targets here, you know. The record for a road car is the rocket which is 11.5 for revs. But that's a bike engine. Yeah, and it's a bike engine, yeah. so it's cheating, really. <laughs> um, we need to bet, and then which, you know, on valve springs, mm, 12,000. Uh, anyway, they came back very quickly and said, yep, we can do that. And then I said, um, we need to better the response time because if there's one single thing about driving an F1 that people remember for a long time, it's the response and the noise. Yeah. That's it really forget the power but it's the response and the noise induction noise so they said uh, okay uh, let's get let's go away and 
I got a rather facetious email from them about 18 months ago to say, uh, as we think we've met your beaten your target. How does 28,400 revs a second sound? And even as an engineer, uh, my head can't go there, you know, really can't go there. So the combination of under a thousand kilos and that engine pickup is going to produce something that no other car has ever produced, road car has ever produced. I mean, yeah. And you talked about the noise, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I was just explained because obviously such a big thing of the F1's, well, sitting in the passenger seat and hearing the uh, yeah. induction noise. So the F1, fast. you see, with a central driving position, you can push the driver forward to the front axle line, which is about 250, 300 mil further forward than a two-seater car. So your driver, the air, <laughs> driver's ears are a long way from the exhaust. Mm. And on the F1, we didn't have um, any valving, so it was, had to pass the Swiss drive-by test, which I think was 73 decibel or something. Mm -hmm. Um, so you were never going to hear the exhaust. So I thought, right, you know, induction sound. Lovely old Weber carbureted front engine, 60s cars, you know, it's almost as good as the yes. exhaust. And of course, um, this is just like the F1. It's got a ram induction box straight down to the inlet valves. There's direct path. And with a very highly tuned engine, you get the valve overlap where you've got the inlet and exhaust open at the same time. And you get quite a strong pulse coming back up. So this, on purpose, finishes right by the driver's ears. And what I did on the F1, I didn't have much time, but I tuned the thickness of the roof. So the induction used the roof as a loudspeaker. So this, the noise was natural and there, it just gets transferred into the cabin. But the great thing about that is, unlike an exhaust, which is noisy and it just goes up with the revs, with the F1, it's all to do with throttle opening, the same as this car. So, you can be cruising at 100 miles an hour on 10% throttle and it's relatively quiet. But if you open the throttle in any gear to overtake somebody, you get this wonderful growl. And that's uh, what I've done again, except now we can take a lot longer to tune that sound and get it even nicer. Yeah. The, I want to go, I don't know to go next really. Um, let's go with gearbox okay. as well. Um, X-Track has done Yes, I believe that's... Yeah, they're great to work with. Both X-Track, um, I think it's important that I wanted this to be a very British motor car this time. So all the major suppliers are in the UK. And in fact, I think something like 90% of all the suppliers are UK based. Uh, and X-Track was a complete no-brainer, really, because um, they, do, they do great work. And they, like Cosworth, very good to work with. And they got, they absolutely got my mission for lightweight and packaging. So uh, they, they've done a great job. And the gearbox is lighter than the one in the Yeah, it's about nine, nine and a half kilos lighter and uh, smaller than, than the F1 box, yeah. And as I understand, the first five ratios are relatively sort of close and then six is... Yeah, that was, the, a, the that was a problem. I, on, on the, I was never interested in acceleration figures on the F1 and same again. So um, I, on purpose, made a sort of an overdrive feeling six that wasn't overdrive because you could get top speed in six. I did that on purpose with the F1, so the car would just calm down. That's why our naught to 200 time is so relatively slow, <laughs> because you change from fifth to six six and the revs drop yeah. die. Um, on this one, we had another problem, because even having that gap with an engine revving to 12 at 100 miles an hour, it's still revving relatively high. So what we've done is they've packaged in space for an 
a very overdriven six gear, which will be a, an option for owners. Right. So nobody's ever going to do top speed, and they don't. People don't do top <laughs> speed. You know, I think the fastest I ever went in an F1 was 225. I never ever went top speed. So that's something we're going to offer as an option for owners. Yeah. And obviously the, the actual shift itself is... Yeah, well, that's, yeah. I mean, once again, you know, I developed that transmission and the shift with Pete Wiseman in the States. And I can remember sitting out in his backyard amongst all the sort of beach buggies and rusty helicopter wrecks and stuff um, in an old Chevy seat and with the cables and the gearbox. But, uh, and and we, we tuned it until it was pretty good. And once the oil's warm in an F1, um, it, it was quite a nice shift. But this is another planet because this is all titanium. And of course, everything's moved on cable technology. And, and we've made the gear change very adjustable. Extract could be very clever by having external adjustment on the prototype boxes. So when we're sitting in, we've got a rig already. Um, when we're sitting tuning the gear change, we can change detent feel, throw cross gate live, if you like, you know. So we should be able to get an even better gear change. I want that to be the best manual gear change on the planet. And, and what for you is that sort of what, what are you what are you looking for it's a the... mixture funny enough it's not as simple as you think it's the obvious ones are um length of throw yep. and crossgate angle mm -hmm. on the f1 i only had a nine degree crossgate angle mm -hmm. which was which was formula one stuff when they had gear levers yeah. um just so the age pattern was less intrusive mm. difficult to get right every time <laughs> that second to third that's sort of <laughs> just oh, difficult please, please to get, get right to third. <laughs> but how pleasing is it when you get it right yeah uh, amazing yes. so yeah. so this one is going to have an equally it's going to have a quite a narrow cross gate mm -hmm. nine ten degrees probably yeah. um, the throw i will develop on the rig just mm -hmm. to see what it feels like but then the next thing is um the actual feel of the detent so mm -hmm. going into gear and yep. coming out uh, with this gearbox it's much more tunable than i had on the f1 so whatever we had on the f1 within 10 percent plus or minus that we had yeah. um, this time i can get that detent feel uh, much better and then the last element is overcoming the synchro cones um, the, the actual interference in the synchro cones and one of the issues we had the gears were so big because of the six liter engine in those days and the gears were relatively heavy and uh, we had to go to a triple cone synchro from first to second so until the oil warmed up it was a bit sticky once it got really over 90 or something it was much better uh, we're working with shell this time on lubricants and the synchro technology has moved on night and day from from those days from the 90s and again with tuning with extract i think we can get that feel much much better um, in terms of things moving on, that brings me on to sort of the next, because um, let's talk about the, uh, first of all, any, tw any 24 karat gold in the engine, engine bay this um, time? Well, again, you see, <laughs> it's whatever's best. I mean, this, this car, once again, whatever is best. If there's a hot spot that we can't fix, modern uh, thermal protection material has moved on massively. You know. <laughs> However, gold is still the best. So where we where we can get away with the top quality stuff that's available now we will if there's a real hot spot it'll be gold again yeah. you know that's it is just whatever is best basically yeah the what i was actually going to was the carbon fiber tub because 
carbon yeah. fiber has moved on. Oh, I mean, yeah. every sort of, yeah. I, I ride road bikes, so <laughs> a lot of my carbon fiber knowledge comes from that yeah. because they're always talking about the layoffs yeah. and the resins and the different sort of, you know, it's touring, Again, 800, 900. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the F1 was pretty basic. I just, whatever we were using in Formula One, I just used on the F1, so I just I didn't I didn't experiment. I didn't look at. I didn't have time to look around and go, you know, where's the next fiber? Uh, you know, can we modify the matrix, uh, the productionization of the panels? It was just Formula One technology, full stop, yeah. which actually was quite straightforward in those days. Mm. Honeycomb everywhere. Uh, now, of course, I mean, it's just moved on. We've got the whole body and chassis weighs 150 kilos which is 50 kilos lighter than the f1 and the torsional stiffness is double so that just shows you you know and we're working with a british company again formaplex on the south coast um, on the carbon fiber everything really the um, chassis and the body and they've been fantastic to work with once again so we've you know we've picked people that really know the business and we've we've embedded people in their business and they've embedded people in our business in all the major supply chains so we get exactly what we want yeah um and is there is there anything that sort of any other materials that have appeared since f1 that you've obviously have then been able to incorporate and allowed you to do anything different with this i mean yeah i think yes we we've used more titanium uh, there's a better selection of titanium now, yes. but actually what's allowed us to use different materials has been the analysis tools. Everything on the F1 was calculated by hand, including the tub and the front crash structure was a hand calc. <laughs> now the analysis tools are so good, they allow you to use materials that you thought maybe we couldn't get away with um, by doing the stress work. You know, we've got a big analysis department in the company. and. Um, I've got away with stuff. I mean, the pedals are a good example. I thought I couldn't get them lighter than the F1, and we've managed to get 300 grams out of them, and we got 800 grams out of the gear change. Yeah. And that's all things that, obviously, if you get the lightweight in that, then the the actual response of the pedal is everything, lighter. Yep, it's everything it's the, goes. It's, it's like taking the watch off your wrist when you it, you steer. Absolutely, because it's, actually it's all to do. Weight is just a designer's enemy, and everything gets better with lightweight and, and you're right it's not just the car it's the components it's the weight of the wheel the inertia of the steering wheel it's lots of different things um let's exhaust titanium obviously and um, suspension because i can see that yep. through the back here uh push rod suspension yeah i've given up a bit of weight um on a few things on the car and that's one of them because um rod operated rising rate suspension is heavier Mm -hmm. I think it's 2.5 kilos or 2.6 kilos heavier than conventional. But it's something that you've always... But this car produces more downforce than the F1. Not, not a ridiculous amount, but m much more than the F1. And I did that just to manage the vertical wheel travel a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, rather than using up the wheel travel, uh, yeah. And in terms of that rings on to, because the F1 has a very distinct fit, it's obviously a, a road car. Um, and I always love that sense of wheel travel. It mm. obviously had quite high uh, profile tires compared to yep. lots of other cars. Is this going to be the same sort of? It is. I mean, these days I, I'm working with Michelin for, in my opinion, the best tire company around. And, and I noticed it's on, it's on PS4s, it's not on Cup 2s. That's right. This. That's right. And uh, the, the low, these are low-ish profile. They're not ridiculous, but they're low-ish. But now they are so good at tuning the sidewall that 
you can get away with a lower profile tyre, you know, particularly when you've got light unsprung weight and the tyres aren't massive because mm. these are 235295, which for a supercar is relatively modest. Um, so we're heading for absolutely a driving experience, not just in performance, but in comfort as well. So the car won't have a, natural, a high natural frequency. It'll be quite softly sprung. It's got passive dampers, no trick yeah. hydraulics or electrics or anything. You don't need it. I mean, we benchmarked, I've got an Alpine A110 as a road car, and we benchmarked that for two months. And that car has nothing trick on it at all. It just does the basics right. Mm. And that's what this does. You don't, you don't need all that stuff, you know, if you haven't, if you've got a two-ton motor car, you can't cheat physics, you've got to start introducing roll compensation and, and you know, hydraulic suspension and stuff like that. One of the things you mentioned there is unsprung weight, and obviously one of the things that I know you wanted to do with the F1 but couldn't at the time was carbon fibre brakes. Brakes, yes. And this is sort of obviously that's Yeah, that's well, there's, there's, I mean, they're now, um, yeah, they're now pretty much common. We, we've lucked in, we've got the next generation Brembo uh, discs, um, which should be very, very good. And this time I've got a little bit of power assistance on them as well. <laughs> I did the F1 that. you had to push quite hard. <laughs> he did, yes, absolutely. And there is some power assistance on the steering, but is it just at low speed? No, not really. Uh, the steering is designed purely as a manual, so we haven't cheated on the geometry. If you know you've got any sort of power assistance, all the design is cheap on the kingpin inclination, the caster angle, pneumatic trail, that sort of stuff. Um, because you know the power assistance is going to overcome that. And it makes the packaging of the brakes and the suspension much easier if you cheat. <laughs> we haven't. This is absolutely pure manual geometry, uh, well within my limits of the, of the five parameters that make up the feel and feedback. Um, but the F1 was a pain to park and maneuver. And, you know, that's what we fixed. So we've got a little bit of electric assistance that clutches in. It's not gradual, it just clutches in below a certain speed, yep. which helps you park. And then it clutches out once you get above that speed and you've got pure manual steering. Um, in terms of electronic assistance, obviously another thing that's coming, um, ESP or DSC or whatever yep. you want to um, call it, that is quite a sort of, it has to be on the car really. It's a legal it? requirement so, now, yes. yeah. So um, you, have to, um, you have to have ESP and with that comes traction control and you have to have ABS. Yeah. Um, I think the ABS, to be honest, is a good thing. Um, it doesn't weigh much these days. It did in the old days. It was mm -hmm. quite a big box, you know, biscuit tin. Um, but what we've done, we haven't cheated. So the car will be signed off passively. So the balance of the car and the throttle control over the balance of the car will be done without any assistance at all. And then we'll just add that. And it's 100% switchable. Yeah. So if you know what you're doing, you want to have some fun, you can switch it off. It it's not a grade, it just switches off completely. No. So um, yeah, it should be pure driving experience. <laughs> and in, in terms of that, I suppose the other big question is sort of more unknown, certainly from my mind is, we haven't talked about the the aero. Um, the aero, because yeah. Yeah, there were fans on the F1, which people... Yeah, that's, get, but that's <laughs> it. I mean, people look at this and they go, oh, Brabham BD46B, not true. Uh, the 46B was a very crude device. I mean, it was just a, a sledgehammer, you know, mm. to, to beat Lotus. It was, it was a vacuum cleaner, basically. It had skirts around the periphery, like a chaparral, mm. but unlike a chaparral, it was driven off the, off the engine. 
and uh, it made tons of downforce. But did you know it was going to get? Did you think it would get banned when you designed it? Did it did you, get did you, banned. Uh, sorry, not banned. No, no. But did you think it would be? <laughs> uh, I thought it would. I thought it would upset a lot of people, and yeah. it did. Um, but you know, I knew we had an argument with the rules because yeah. the rules were pretty clear. Mm. You know, on movable aero devices, yeah. and people knew it was a loophole cheat. But yeah. it was a loophole. And they said, the letter I got from the CSI after they came to the factory and unsealed the truck and the car and measured the fan flow through the rad and through the back, they got more air through the rad than we designed, actually. <laughs> um, I got a letter to say you can run it till the end of the season, but then we are changing the rules, yeah. so don't bother making another one. <laughs> I already had another one on the drawing board. But this has nothing to do Sorry, with yeah. You're right. <laughs> You're absolutely right. The, 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 uh, this uh, system is boundary layer control. It's quite sophisticated. And it was on the F1. I had two fans, I think 120, 140 mil, buried in the flank here. And I had two small sections of the diffuser, very steep reflex shape that the air would never follow. And we pulled the boundary layer off and the air followed it. And we got 5% more downforce and 2% reduction in drag. Uh, but we run out of time in the wind tunnel because we were stealing time from the Formula One team, not popular. <laughs> and, uh, but I logged that in my memory and I thought if I ever do another one, I'd like to use that um, to help keep the rest of the car clean because this works so hard for you mm. and the diffuser starts right here and the downforce all happens around here which is around the center of gravity of the car which means you don't have to have big splitters out the front and spoilers and stuff and, and flaps and holes and all these ducts that a lot of manufacturers tell you were born in the wind tunnel but they weren't. Um, you don't need any of that stuff. So it's funny but the rear of the car is very very technical but it's the rear of the car that helps us keep the rest of the car clean ironically yes um, so what it does it, it we have much deeper much huge diffusers they're above the drive shaft and instead of being a gradual slope that the air sticks to they just change direction like that massive and of course the air just doesn't follow that but we we remove all the boundary layer Difficult fan to design because normally you design a fan for flow or suction. This has to do both. You need enough flow to remove all the boundary layer, mm -hmm. but then you get losses in the ducts. So you need a certain amount of suction as well. So the blade geometry, it's fixed, fixed geometry blades, right. um, but the blade geometry is such that it has to cope with flow and suction. But it gives us massive control over the car, and more importantly, from a fun point of view, it gets the driver massive control. So depending on what the, um, the driver wants, there's four modes that are driver selectable, uh, and two that are automatic. Right. And it just, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it works beyond my wildest dreams. You know, I had targets of increase in, in downforce under braking, for example. We wanted a 50 to 70% increase. We got a 100% increase in, in downforce when you jump on the brakes. And the algorithm we've written decides you're going quick enough to need aero assistance. Um, uh, and that is because the fan interacts with not just the bottom surface, but with the top surface with these two spoilers as well. So these, these can go up and down. And then in streamline mode, we were aiming for an 8% reduction in drag, and we've ended up at 12.5%. So the car really just settles down. Mm. We stall in streamline mode, we stall the diffusers. The fan takes the air from the top instead of the bottom, cleans up the top deck, reduces drag. These go to minus 10 degrees. 
and we make an effective, a virtual long-tail car by filling the base suction with the fan exhaust. So, and we get 15 kilos of thrust. <laughs> so it all adds up to a lot less drag. So the problem with all aerodynamic downforce on anything is that, apart from racing cars, road cars, is that in a straight line, you know, well, actually even racing cars, in a straight line, it keeps building up a square of the speed and you don't want it because you're using up valuable wheel movement and eventually you get onto the bump stops and the car gets a bit squirrely and stuff. So we can actually dump it when we don't want it using the fan uh, and then we can have more when we want it using the fan. So, and we can have it at lower speeds because we can tell the air to follow a certain profile. So, so you will actually feel it at road speeds? Yeah, yeah, relatively low speeds, yeah. yeah. We might talk a bit more about the designs walk down to the front. One mm. other thing on the, I noticed it's got a 48 volt starter generator. Yeah, so. That's, that's something I hadn't perhaps Yeah, that saves like. around 20 kilos on the engine. Um, I needed 48 volts to drive the fan and the air conditioning in the F1 was rubbish uh, off with a belt driven um, compressor and the cabin exit air wasn't big enough anyway on the F1. So um, what the 48 volt generator does, it gives us 48 volts to drive the fan and 48 volts to drive electric um, air conditioning, which is independent of engine speed, of course. So that should work this time. Um, but it also acts as an alternator and a starter. So there's nothing belt driven off the engine at all, which is fantastic, keeps it nice and clean, maintenance free. And uh, it saves around 20 kilos. Yeah, because you imagine how big uh, a fan motor would have been in 12 volts, you know, it would have been a huge thing. Yeah. Um, moving now to the front of the car, the, you were saying earlier about the, the extra sort of surface detail and sort of sculpting, I think that's Yeah, there were just a few yeah. things. We, we, to be fair, we signed the F1 off in clay, full-size clay model in those days. So you don't really get to see the highlights until we cut it into tooling block. By then it's too late. Apart from a few wet and dry moving lines around, you can't change anything, you know. And there were a few areas on the F1 that I wish I'd done slightly differently. One of them was to get a bit more valley through here. Um, another one was the, the spine is about 50 mil too wide on the F1. And every time I see one, it drives me mad. It's just, it's not in proportion to the width of the car. And the deck was a bit flat. And the deck, the plan form of the rear was quite square. Mm. And I wanted to get a bit more muscle into this and a bit more highlights and shape generally. And I think we've nailed it on this one just because of the tools we have available now. You know, it's, you can see the car much earlier in the process. You can see the final car and the final highlights. Mm. So, um, and also things like on the F1 to save money, we use standard lamp units in our own little cassette truck lights on the rear you know it was just yeah. it was a money saving thing this yeah. time we just pushed the boat out we're working with a great company called Ypac mm -hmm. and um, we've done the lamps from scratch with the latest generation of LEDs and and got a complete focus on light pattern and throw mm -hmm. and uh, you know we've had a bit of fun just they're such lovely mechanical things I mean most people put the heat sink on the return air with the fan underneath but it's a nice thing to look at, so why yeah. not stick it in the top air, you know, stuff like that. Having had memories of driving 
an F1 at night. Um, I <laughs> oh, they, were useless. they were useless. You know. There were certain things on the F1 that just didn't work. The aircon was one of them. Yeah. Loading the luggage on the side was a pain. Um, the lamps were completely useless. Um, you know, over 100 miles an hour, you, know, you couldn't see anything, really. Um, so we tried to fix things, too, and bring, you know, with modern technology, um, trying to make things that didn't work, work this time, and work better. And overall, the size is it's only a tiny it, Yeah, it's 30 mil, 15 mil a side wider. Mm -hmm. That's all gone into the passengers. And it's about 60 mil longer, which is actually mostly the fan. Because obviously the architecture and the layout's very similar, you know. Um, but it's still a very small car. The, the overall footprint, if you, if you multiply length by width, is, is Porsche Boxster. So it's pretty small. Yeah, absolutely. Should we have a look inside? Yep, absolutely. Brilliant. So the interior of this is... It's all once, all once familiar, but very different. It looks even more airy in there than uh, with the F1. Um, and screens is obviously a sort of the, the biggest modern update to this, yeah. but they stay blank most of the time. They, right? they do, and when, they do, when the graphics do come up, they're white on black, very easy to read, very clear, no fancy um, colours and flashes and all that rubbish. Um, absolutely just what you need. The right-hand screen is um, infotainment, so everything you would expect, which is controlled from here. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the screen page is controlled from here, the menu. And the left-hand screen is um, car information, engine information, and aero information. So this top knob is the aero loads. And just for, just for fun, uh, one thing it does have in common with the fan car, the Brabham fan car, which had the pitot tube on the top, if you remember. Mm -hmm. And the pitot tube, we measured static pressure, and then the other end of the tube of the pitot went to the underside of the car. So we measured suction. And I went to a breaker's yard, aeroplane breaker's yard, bought two altimeters. And because that's all a pitot tube does, it just turns it into feet above the ground. We had a red zone. I said to the drivers, forget about all the numbers on the altimeter. There's a red zone and a green zone. Every time you come up to a corner, make sure you're in the green zone. If you're in the red zone, you've broken the skirt, you have to slow down 30 miles an hour, you won't go around the corner, basically. And Nicky said he drove the whole race just staring at He never looked at the instruments. It was over here, and he just stared at it the whole, every corner. Um, and this one, one, one of the outside cameras has got a pitot tube in it. And the other, the other transducers underneath uh, the, the Venturi, the, the diffuser area. So when you do something on the arrow, on this screen, it will show you how much suction you're generating with what you've just called up. Amazing. So just a bit of fun, <laughs> yeah, you know. Absolutely. You mentioned the cameras. Obviously, you've got the two screens, which are in place of conventional. Yeah, wing I, I shot myself in the foot a bit. We were going to have mirrors, mm. uh, but in moving the uh, cabin a little further forward again um, to get an even better view of the front wings, the corners, um, it meant that the mirrors had to go from the back of the A-pillar, because we didn't get the, the sight angle right, to the front, which meant the mirrors would have been right in front on top of the wing. And since the F1, they've gone up once or twice in size. And the car is so small, when we mocked up the mirrors, they just yes. looked absolutely dreadful. They ruined the whole car. Yeah. So we coughed up a few million and went to cameras, <laughs> um, which of course, is a bit better for drag and looks and everything as well. And, and the system is a bit lighter too, funny enough. Is it? Yeah. 
Um, it's a very simple wheel, as you say. I, I noticed there are paddles like there were on the F1 um, on the on the back of the wheel. Yeah, and once again, they do they do horn and headlamp flash. Um, nice thin rim. Indicators here and the screen controls here, and that's it basically. Um, I, I can't I can't be doing with these wheels that are full of little buttons that you, when you're trying to drive quickly. Yes. The same as touchscreens. There's not a touchscreen in sight. You know. So one thing about the Alpine, the touchscreen's in the middle of the car, and you've got to deflect about 45 degrees to actually, and then you've got to steady yeah. your hand yeah. and try and pick something up. I just I think touchscreens in a supercar are complete. Just. I think they're actually dangerous. Um, and in terms of the, sort of the, the dials there, and the, the, they're all, I remember saying before, they, the, the, the tactile nature of those. Yeah, is we've got absolutely zero spindle shape uh, movement on these now, and everything is machined from solid. And uh, you know, we found a great switchgear uh, company to work with. Uh, managed to get the pedals a little bit lighter, the gear changes a little bit lighter. I wanted this. Uh, eight millimeters diameter titanium, mm -hmm. but when I put a bit in the vice, you could actually feel a bit of movement in it. So we had to go up to nine mil, but we still managed to save 800 grams on the gear change. And now everything's on display with this cantilevered hybrid structure with carbon and billet aluminium. We've got the mechanism on display, which is beautiful. It's uh, yeah. really lovely. And the cabin's just more airy. Um, I mean, the F1 is a pretty lovely place to be. But it, we've made this a bit more easier to get in and out by losing these big beams past the driver. It's got a flat floor. The cabin's a bit longer. It's a bit wider for the passengers. And we, we've now got an option of glass in the roof. So it's, um, it's a more airy place to be, if you like. Um, the other thing I saw about the F1 was obviously the, the hi-fi system in there, which was uh, Kenwood system, I think. Yes. Um, and <laughs> famously, I'm assuming this hasn't still got a radio. Do you still have a... Uh, no, well, now this works. Now, there's an interesting one because we, we, we studied all the other manufacturers and they spent a lot of money developing their own systems. The problem with that is by the time the car gets produced, the system's pretty much out of date. Well, no, that's not true. Some of the system is out of date. Um, so what we've done is we've gone straight off your phone, so there's a wireless connection to your phone. Mm -hmm. So everything you have on your phone and would expect in the car, you know, sat-nav, um, radio, your music, what, whatever, um, works directly off your phone. Um, and you pick up the menu here and you select with this rotary knob here and it, everything works off your phone. So it'll never, it'll get automatic updates. So, um, so I've given in a little bit on that, but it doesn't weigh much. <laughs> We're working with a company, a British company called Arcam, mm. um, who are part of the Harman Group, and they've made top-end British hi-fi. I've, I've had their, um, when they were Cambridge Audi, I've had their, their um, amplifiers. And uh, they've never done a car system before. And when I told them I'd like the system under six kilos completely, they wanted ten loudspeakers. And I think the F1 had four, <laughs> I can't remember. Um, but boy, have they, not, not just the quality of the system is fantastic, but they really rose to the challenge. And it's coming at 4.35 kilos, the whole system. So uh, it was brilliant. Excellent. Gordon, thank you so much. Um, I cannot wait to, I cannot wait to hear one. I think above all else, that's, <laughs> yes. that is the thing. Oh, me too. <laughs> having, heard the, uh, having heard the V12 on the dyno, which is all a bit muffled and stuff, you know, I can't wait to actually hear it coming through the roof of the car. Yeah. Very fantastic. Yeah.
Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. <laughs>